My guest this week is Chris Sarkeesian. He's an entrepreneur, philanthropist, who has traveled all over the world. He talks about the time he made his first dollar in high school to now owning seven restaurants and owning his own marijuana facility. By the time his father went through some criminal charges and the FBI showed up to his door, Chris at the time was just a kid. When he experienced with DMT and Combo, or when he was in ICE custody, Chris truly has a motivational and inspiring story. Here's part one. All right, I got my guy Chris Sarkeesian with me. Chris, Chris and I, um, we re-engaged with each other a couple of weeks ago at a barbecue, at a friend's barbecue, a mutual friend's barbecue. But Chris and my brother John went to school together, same class, right? Yeah, I met him in second grade. Second grade. Yeah, I man. think this is the last time you were at my house, too. Yeah, somewhere <laughs> way back then, second to fourth grade, something yeah. like that. So Chris is an entrepreneur. He is all over the place. And I constantly tell everybody that it, we all have stories, and some of us just have better stories than others. Chris has a story and a half, and we're going to get into a lot of it today. Looking at Chris, you can't stop and notice about the tattoos. How many do you own today? Just one. Just one. <laughs> one just, full just that just covers one, the entire just body. One giant tattoo. <laughs> I actually have a, a, just my upper torso. My torso, my arms, my neck is pretty much heavily, heavily blasted. I've got nothing on my legs. I think I'm going to be working on that soon. But, um, yeah, it's something that started years ago 16 17 years old talking about years ago you were born in australia you moved here when you were two yeah born in 78 came to the states in 1980 yep so your your parents meet in australia or they did my parents my dad had migrated to australia on his own and my mother was there with her family both from syria at the time or both their grand their parents uh genocide survivors my grandparents my on my dad's side um, so yeah, they met there and it was a forbidden love, but they did, they, they did, they ended up getting married and he moved her here to the United States and started a life for himself here. Just a, a struggling artist at the time. Yeah. Your father is still a very popular Armenian singer. Still traveling yeah, I, I, the I tra- world? Or? I, he does. You know, people ask sometimes and I, I still think he's one of the most well-respected, you know, I don't like to say famous, you know, he is, he is a famous dude, but he's one of the most well-respected Armenian revolutionary singers in the world. And not only was he a singer, he was an activist. Mm-hmm. So he carried the voice. He was the voice of our people and an organization. So, yeah, it's been an interesting man to have in my life. You've traveled most of the world, right? I mean, you've seen a lot of countries so far. I have seen a lot of countries. Uh, I've been all through Asia, Australia, Canada, the United States. I've been through South America. I to believe it or not, I've, I'm ashamed to say this, but I've never been to Armenia. You know, I never really made it to the Middle East. It was never like on my on my radar. But uh, other been than the that, Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe. But you're all cl- you're Europe. close. But it was just one of those things where it just wasn't on my radar. I was never just drawn to it from a young age. You know, hmm. as connected as I am now with my heritage, just I def- I just didn't do those travels. And now uh, I'm married. I've got a kid, and my wife's actually been to Armenia multiple times. Hmm. I think at this time I'm just gonna wait to get, you know, a couple, couple more years. My daughter's five years old. I think by like seven or eight years old, she'll be ready. She's already pretty well traveled as it is, but uh, I think she'll really appreciate Armenia at that time. You've been, uh, like I mentioned, all over the, the, the world. Are there any spots in the country that you can see yourself living permanently? In this country? In the or world. In the world. We talk about that in my household sometimes, you know, like to live permanently, like, I really like where we live. You know, I complain sometimes about it. I don't complain, but, you know, you have your opinion about things sometimes. But 
I like California. I like where we live. Um, I see myself having vacation houses in a lot of places that I that resonate with me. You know, I, I love the south of France. I love Costa Rica. I love Australia. So there's places that I think I don't need like these huge properties anywhere. But you know, down the road, if I can buy you know a couple small vacation homes in certain cities around the world, I would like to spend time you know divided in those cities. I couldn't just see myself moving somewhere. There's too many things to let go. There's wife's family. There's your kid. There's her schooling now. There's friends. There's family. It's just too difficult to get up and just move at this point. So it's not really a reality. So I've never really put that much thought into it. But to have vacation homes places, 100%. Yeah. Things I would travel back to. Yeah. Plus it'd make you get back there, right? Yeah, you got a place in Spain. You're gonna you're gonna go there at least are. once a year. But again, there's just dude, there's just so many fucking places to go to around the world. Yeah, that, that move you in so yeah. many places. Like we've been, like there's places that I'll never go back to. Like we went to India over the holidays, and like I would never go back. Mm. Although like it was an amazing experience, you know. What made you go there? But well, one of my good friends was getting married. He's Indian. We okay. went there for like a real traditional five day wedding that took place, and then we actually toured quite a bit cool um through a couple different cities went to gandhi's house went to went to you know elephant island and went into little villages and met with people it was just a lot of poverty man yeah super super poor yeah it's really really sad um but you know there's a lot of depth there i would like to take my daughter one day so maybe she could see Uh you know you see kids that are bathing in potholes full of water and then you have your daughter doing a backstroke in your in her uh, bathtub at home yeah it's pretty crazy it is crazy but um you know you go you see taj mahal and yeah like i said you go into gandhi's house and there's just so many different layers to it but it's not a place that i would go back to and then you go to a place like barcelona or paris and you can go visit for five days three nights whatever and just it's beautiful and it's magnetic and you can go and you can enjoy some art you enjoy some good food and desserts and a little bit of culture and some sights and then you dip back and that has its own layers. So, but F- favorite every, place to visit? Oof, favorite place to visit these days. That's kind of a tough one. Besides your office, I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> I work a lot. Uh, I I really enjoy Australia, man. Yeah. Sydney, Australia has always been. I mean, yeah, I was born there, but I've got a great circle of friends out there. I've got family out there, and it's so diverse. You know, they're so multifaceted and cultured, and it's small. It just has, again, so many different layers to it. So, dude, I just, I really enjoy going back there. And the traveling aspect doesn't bother you? The flying in the in a steel. No, Circular I like to try. I like, yeah. I like. I don't mind. I don't mind flying at all. I know these are some long distance flights. You know, even when I was younger, like I didn't care. Like if I could just buy a $800 ticket and fly anywhere, coach, I did not. It's awesome. I would do it. Where most people like they won't go the distance like we had an opportunity to go to bali for our birthday we had no time it was like the whole trip we had like four days and everything you're gonna go all the way to bali there's 20 hours of travel time Mm -hmm. to be there for two nights and i was like yeah but it's all about the travel Mm -hmm. it's about leaving my house and the experience starts there going through the airport flying out there getting to another airport getting in the cab driving through those streets seeing the people trying some street food like there's so many different things that take place and just that is also part of the travel that's part of the experience and that's a good way to look at it because that's going to make you want to get out of the house and go and travel because if you're looking at it that way but most people don't and and they limit themselves because they don't have the time to go like hey if you not everybody has the luxury to take a two-week or a three-week vacation 
you know? Yeah. But sometimes we do, sometimes we don't, but that shouldn't limit yourself from going somewhere because, oh, we're only going to be there for two nights. Dude, I can go into any city, any city, and be there for two nights, three days, and see everything that I need to see and get the fuck out. Right. And right. become a changed man. And right. I do that. Like, right. I've got one of my boys, he travels to China and to Europe for trade shows yearly, twice a year, and it's one of my getaways. I, I meet him, whether it's Hong Kong, it's Shenzhen, Shanghai, uh, last time it was Germany and Amsterdam, or we'll pop into London. I'll fly out there literally for a weekend. Mm. I'll see two cities that mm. I've already been to, but I get the experience of time with him, and we go dip around a little bit and come back. Dude, I'm a changed man. Yeah. Everybody's like, do you fly all the way? And I'm like, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm filled. I'm ready to come home after a couple of days. I feel like I procrastinate when, I, when I'm when i about to travel, but once I'm done traveling and coming back home, it's an addiction. Yeah. You kind of want to go back and do it again or go yeah. somewhere else and visit, right? Yeah, there's nothing like travel, dude. It's yeah. like a lot of the my education whatever I've a lot of what I've learned comes through travel and those experiences and being in those situations I mean and all the people you meet too I've met some good people traveling I do you yeah. always meet some interesting people right when you allow yourself to you got to be open to it I'm not the type of guy that really likes to go and sit on a beach like mm -hmm. dude I can go down here mm -hmm. like it's cool mm -hmm. but I don't want it to, if I had a week off I don't want to be on a beach for a week mm -hmm. I want to go I want to get into the street I want to eat that street food I want to go into the museums I want to see some history. I want to see, I want to meet people, just hang out in their coffee shops, like see what that day-to-day -day is like. What their life is like, yeah. right? Yeah. So just being like, just to lay, I don't need, I don't have a life to where I feel like I just need to decompress and be on a beach for two weeks, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm happy. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't search for just that. And dude, we're in California. We get good sun right here. Our backyard. Back to the tattoos. We'll move on. When was your first? First, first tattoo, I was... Uh, 16 or 17 years old, my parents allowed us to go to, it was, we went on a senior get trip to, with me and Sako Krikorian, and <laughs> he didn't get one, and my other buddy Auden, and I talked him into getting a tattoo, and in Cancun, in the middle of the night, just belligerent drunk, and uh, mine started with an, an, an Indian, chief Indian tattoo on my shoulder, and for me then, I mean, it was so crappy but I just loved it I thought it was the coolest thing and it represented you know courage and strength and leadership um, which I still believe in those things I've covered it up now mm. but um, that was the, that was the first but I knew as a kid I actually got my fingers tattooed two nights ago huh. and uh, I was having this conversation with my mom because she just thinks I'm out of my mind still with the way my body looks and I'm like I've known that I was going to be like this since I was like 10, 11 years old like this is what I wanted so um, I've just been going with it. Why do you think you're that way? I think it's just so, I mean, it is, it's some self-expression. It kind of keeps you apart. I just like, dude, there was like, even my tips were not there. And I just felt like something was empty. Like mm. it was lacking something. And some people laugh at you. They're like, I don't know whether to read you or to talk to you. <laughs> it, don't, it don't really matter. It's just, I, I forget that they're there. Even like my wife, like the first thing was like, what is she going to tell her family? Mm. You know, when she met me and it's like now, she doesn't even notice. Every now and then, she'll see me like laying down. She's like, "God, you have a lot of tattoos, man!" Mm -hmm. And she goes, "We don't see them. They're mm -hmm. just, they're just there." Do you have a count on them? I don't know. I really look at it as just one. It's one, one big full, piece. Yeah. yeah. I can tell you that I've got, you know, over, I don't know, 50, 60 hours of under the needle time on my torso. You know, heavily tattooed, heavily detailed, with some of the most famous, uh, sought out after tattoo artists in the world. 
and uh, dude, this experience, even those experiences are surreal. I sit with uh, Mr. Cartoon, yeah. who's, uh, you know, now he's into like the sports thing. He's doing a lot of stuff for the Kings and the Rams and now the Clippers. He's done Nike shoes and Diesel. This guy's been tattooing Eminem and Dr. Dre, um, you name it. So you sit and you just chat with this guy, dude, about his lifestyle and where he came from the street and what he's made with him out of this culture. Like it, it resonates with me. Like it's just cool. Man. Is he putting murals on the street or no? He does have he does, murals. Right? Yeah. absolutely but right now it's he's stepped it up like he's got his own diesel watch brand he did the nike nice. shoes um i said the, i was just there at his house he was doing some crazy artwork he was just doing a collab for the clippers nice. i know he did all the, the king's helmets you're a king's yeah. fan yeah he's starting to do a lot of their apparel so how'd, how'd you get in with him he just now he like even the shorts i'm wearing he just did a collab with drake nice with uh OVO. Yeah. How did I get in with him? So one of my best friends from New York, Emmanuel Concas, he's a Michelin star chef. He's actually my daughter's um, godfather. She's got a real Italian godfather. Yeah. <laughs> um, he was doing some food for a video shoot they were doing for Snoop Dogg out there. And who was shooting with him was Estefan Oriol, who's a famous street photographer here in California, in Los Angeles, world-renowned. And he is best friends with Cartoon. So he wanted to get shot by him. Just to have your photo taken by this dude is pretty cool. Sure. He's got like a couple books out right now, like Portraits of L.A., all more like street gang members and stuff mm -hmm. like that. So he made that introduction there. You would know Estefan because you guys ever see those L.A. hands, the yeah. woman's hand? That's yeah. his wife. That's Angel. Oh. That, that picture has kind of made them famous. Oh. So he shoots, and him and Cartoon have Soul Assassin studios together here in los angeles and then when they came down mono was getting tattooed i went i got introduced and uh, dude this guy charges like an obscene amount of money but he's tattooing ball players and celebrities we jived i told him that i couldn't afford that he just worked it out for me now we've become like homies like we're awesome. down in orange county they always hit us up yeah um, we've done some catering with the restaurants for them but we just he's cool he's he's like a mentor and he's he's a really 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 cool guy. Talking about expensive things, you are now would be considered an entrepreneur, a businessman. At what age did you think that way? When when did you want to start making money? I figured out very young, obviously, that money was a tool, is a key. You know, I don't necessarily give you rate success based off of how much money you have, but definitely the more money you have, the more access to everything you want is there. So it's about financial freedom. So, you know, we grew up in a family business and we had to work hard as kids. Um, we, I mean, there was no way to get home from school. When we came to school in Montebello, we would get stuck at our parents' dry cleaners. And uh, so we kind of had to work there. But my, That was the family business at the time, right? My, yeah. Okay. My, 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 my dad actually originally, they came here, he was a singer and they uh -huh. had gas stations and we'll get into it. But when he had some criminal charges yeah. that came up, he had to get rid of the gas stations and then he wanted something that my mother could do. So they got into a dry cleaning plant. You know, these are the struggles, man. When you don't have a career and education, you know, and you went into like a sweatshop business mm -hmm. and that's what they mm -hmm. did. So we grew up learning business in that environment, you know, just hard. It's really just fucking hard work and, and sacrifice is what we saw. So that was our first thing about, you know, learning about business. But, you know, the hustle and learning what we wanted was just you just pay attention. You know, mm -hmm. you know, I was very observant from a young age and I knew that I wanted things and I wanted to be able to provide for myself. And I knew my mom was doing the best that she could because my dad wasn't around. And I was like, I got to hustle. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I mm -hmm. started hustling. You, you know, have no choice, right? 
You don't. You have. I mean, you do. You have the choice not yeah. to. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a do that's, or don't. That's right. But it's, yeah. You, I always think you got to get up and start. I don't care who what you do, who you are, and what place you're in. You need to hustle to get to a certain status, and then once you're there, it doesn't just keep coming. You got to get up and fucking run mm-hmm. every fucking morning. Mm-hmm. You better get up. You're gonna get run over. Exactly. That's like sports. I mean, it's the same analogy. You can get drafted. That's not that difficult. You know, especially in, in let's say baseball. There's 45 rounds. Getting drafted and staying a major league ball player is completely different. I have a good friend of mine, um, Patrick Manning. Went to Modern Day High School, uh, Sports Illustrated layout. He was the next big thing, and uh, he got signed to the Atlanta Braves. Got a fucking dope eight hundred thousand, you know, signing contract, mm-hmm. and then did. He got dropped to the fucking minors, mm-hmm. and then he fucking was out. Mm-hmm. And we talk. He's a police officer now. He's mm-hmm. cool as fuck. Still mm-hmm. my boy from childhood. Mm-hmm. And he used to tell me, because we've had this conversation, he's like, bro, like, I was good. And then you get out there, and they're just that much fucking better. Yeah. I'm like, dude, you were the beast. He said, yeah, but I fit the so boy coming out of modern day, this, sure. that. I was good, but I obviously wasn't that good. The level of play is dude, ridiculous. It's, it's, it's stupid. A, that's right. Yeah, it's stupid. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When did you make your first dollar? <laughs> <laughs> we can keep it real on this one. Oh, we oh, will. Oh my god. No, no censorship. So I just, show. I just, I just do it. I was, <laughs> I just changed schools. I was in army, private school till like eighth grade till you know things didn't work out, and I ended up going to an all boys school. I was kind of the outsider. I started mid year. I didn't know anybody, and there was a group of guys that were trying to find weed. And uh, you're in eighth grade. Uh, no, I, I, I left my survey. Okay, you're grade, in ninth grade now. Ninth grade, yeah. All boys school. Freshman year, halfway through, because it was an issue. I didn't want to go to school. My dad was like, you don't want to go to school? Then you're going to go to work. I started sure. working yeah. kind of with them, not doing any, not, any money, not making any money, but just fucking working for them because I didn't want to go to school. Halfway through, I'm like, I'm done. I need to go back to school. So it made me go to an all-boys school. Okay. Servite. Okay. So I get there. I don't know anybody. I'm trying to fit in, trying to be cool, having an identity crisis because, fuck, I came from Mesopotamia. I'm like, there's like eight boys in the entire class. <laughs> so uh, just so these kids were like asking for weed, and I just thought, oh, yeah, I can get you fucking marijuana. Of course I can. And I just had no idea where the fuck I was going to get marijuana from. And uh, I came home and my mom used to have mint and have mint dried mint leaves in the, in the backyard or in her fucking pantry. And I filled up a bag of, of mint leaves, man. And I fucking went to school the next day and I sold them a bag of weed for 20 bucks. And I came home and I thought, fuck, man, I just made 20 bucks. Yeah. I don't fucking On mint. some mint weed. Went mint weed. And then the <laughs> fucking hilarious part was that these kids the next day were like acting like, you know, they, they got high. I don't know if they smoked it or not or the placebo effect or whatever the fuck it was. But... <laughs> I sold them a bag of weed, so that was my first thing. Like, okay, I can fucking hustle. Can do this. Yeah. That's so. pure profit, man. Mom's uh, buying mom's these buy- <laughs> before leaves. You got that, no overhead that, or That cost. was a one-time thing, but we, re- <laughs> we revisited that lifestyle definitely in my uh, late and early late teens and early 20s so mom know about that story or? they they do uh-huh. they all do and they just think it's so funny man <laughs> because it, you know they've they've seen me that that progress into what it did over the years after that let's talk about that hustle real quick mm-hmm. you know i started selling weed through high school and um now were you selling weed or were now, you selling now, mint? now we're in high school a few years later you know 10th 11th grade you're selling the I real started, stuff yeah i'm past okay. 13 i was starting to dabble with it a little bit <laughs> okay. in order to get it so and it kind of escalated even right into my 20s you start you know meeting a lot of the wrong and right people and you know next thing you know i'm buying grams to eighths to ounces to pounds and my business line is getting bigger and 
my friend circle is getting bigger and my packets are getting deeper and you know things were cool but to fast forward a little bit from there it all doesn't work out that well and I I did end up getting in trouble and uh, I got busted and I went you know I ended up I ended up in jail mm -hmm. so I ended up in jail almost hit a county year on that charge I took a deal with the judge I had a pretty clean record before then I did my time but at that time the judge told me that Mr. Sarkeesian tracking on this ice offense he told me you may be deported for this i was born in australia i came into this country as an immigrant i had my green card but i never got my citizenship mm -hmm. i didn't want to give up a uh, my australian passport and at the time australia didn't allow dual citizenship so my attorney bruce margolin tells me the big shot fucking cannabis attorney tells me oh the law is not in effect go ahead and take the plea this is a good deal just do it do it do it mm -hmm. you're gonna do you know half the time and you're gonna get out how old are you at the time i was uh 20, 21, 22 years old. Okay, okay. So I get in, I do my time, everything's fine, whatever. I took the deal, I get out, and everything's cool. My life's in a complete different place. I get out, my auntie invites me to Australia for a month, and I spent a month out there. It was my first real like travel alone. And then um, from there, I like met my Armenian friends, my my boys that I'm clicked with out there. We went traveling through Europe for a couple of years. Life was just in a fast forward pace. Things were going well. Uh, we started getting into restaurants, me and my brother. And uh, to get back onto the ice thing, we fast forward. 9/11 happened. Harsh immigration laws that were passed by Bill Clinton went into effect that weren't in effect, and I became a candidate. I was mandatory deportable. So Holy I was traveling shit. through Europe. I came back from Europe on a high, and I got stopped at deferred inspections right here in Los Angeles. And then a sworn testimony, fingerprint, mugshot. I felt like I was going through the loop. They took my documents from me and told me that I needed to see a judge. And me being all pompous and young, hot-headed, thinking I was so cool that I'd done nothing wrong, mouthed off a little bit. So who knows what they wrote in their notes. Mm. I went to go see a, a hearing officer. I was rude to the hearing officer, telling him give me my documents back. And I ended up in a court. Mm. I ended up in court, and the judge told me, you're mandatory deportable. And I, I fought that from 2004 until 2009. I took this all the way to the Ninth Circuit, appellate's courts. I was just, I was fighting this thing for years, just kind of putting it off, mm -hmm. not knowing what was going to happen. <clears throat> and at this time, you're talking years have passed. Now I've owned, I've opened multiple restaurants. I was nominated for Entrepreneur of the Age under the age of 30. I got all these congressional awards that we were doing. It became a pillar. This is between these yeah. years? Yeah. Wow. It became a pillar of my community. Like a lot of cool things were happening. I was working on putting together a production company. We were putting together a hip-hop concert called Street Sounds. My life was like, I'm 28 years old. I'm high on life. Like things are rocking and rolling. And so that year was going on. So I think it was right after I turned 29. Um, I got a phone call and they said, hey, you know, their FBI is here. And the CIA is here. And can you talk to us? And my grandma's house called and my mm -hmm. business is called. So I didn't think anything's up. I said, absolutely. Yeah, I'll meet you guys. So I went down to one of the restaurants. I got in. I had been growing this beard and I was, had a hat on and. Uh, one of the, some lady in civilian clothes goes, are you Chris? And I said, yeah, I'm Chris. She said, you sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. She goes, take your hat off. So I take my hat off. She goes, okay, cool. She's all, we just want to talk to you. And I said, oh, absolutely. Let's just walk through and have a seat. And we're in the restaurant. And as soon as I took a few steps, they came in from all three doors during lunch oh, hour, shit. like guns drawn. Put your hands on your head. And I thought, holy shit. And I got all these like, you know, we're in like uh, deep Anaheim where there's, you know, it's pretty rough in that little area where they're at. And uh, <clears throat> so we have a lot of Latino, Chicano, 
and gang member and uh, just regular, just a little different society in that place, a little rougher crowd. And they got up because these guys are all in civilian clothes and I'm their boy. You know, that's their joint that they come hang sure. out at. So everybody this is got, your normal clientele <coughs> watching you get they down. They were yeah. not about it. So they wanted to know what the fuck was going on. It caused a big old problem when they told me what was going on. And I was just like, I just was like, nobody wants this to go away more than I do. Mm-hmm. Like, let's do this. Mm-hmm. I didn't know where I was going, what I was doing, but they detained me, and uh, they took me to downtown LA and took me underneath the city hall building. They detained me there for like three days. I couldn't believe I was on U.S. soil at that time. It was the immigrants and the lack of, uh, you know, just food and showers, and it was dirty, and it was a transition place. You know, people were coming and going, intake, outtake, intake, release. <clears throat> anyway, from there I got shipped to... Um, uh, Lancaster. They told me I was going to Texas and ended up shooting me to Lancaster. When I finally got there, I was like, okay, at least I have a, I can get to my phones now. There's a shower. There's a bed. Unfortunately, like not, I've been to jail before. Like, not that I felt comfortable, but yeah. I was like, okay, yeah. I can deal with this now. Let's mm-hmm. figure this out. And uh, it was the holidays were coming by, and you know, it was right. It was like December 9th of 2008 or 2009. And uh, they kept telling me, oh, by the holidays, we're going to get you out. And then it was like, oh, you know, Valentine's Day came and went. The Super Bowl came and went. And then it was my 30th birthday. I got in trouble. I was in the hole during that time. My birthday came and went. I was working on throwing this hip-hop festival that I still threw from in there. Mm. That came and went. I was done, dude. Like, I just was like, I, I was so depressed. I was so frail. I was so banged out that my life was peaking, man, like, travel and money was good and restaurants and friends and I was on a good path I had no problems I'd done nothing wrong I paid my dues to society like I felt fucking good I'm a pillar of my community now and then bang I'm in a fucking they're holding you back from living but I'm just in the dark yeah I know when when you felt this way how long were you in jail for nine months okay nine months of deportation proceedings until they found a judge um who every now and then takes a case like this that he can, you know, didn't really have a whole lot legal to hang his hat on. <clears throat> but, you know, they did what they had to do and they, the city stood up and they said, we're not going to let this guy leave after everything he's done for the city. And they all backed me, petitions, and uh, the city really stood up. Mm. Little Leagues, Pop Warners, parents, kids, like, they just all came together, dude. And no they just way. Asked, yeah, it was the huge. city of Anaheim? Yeah, absolutely. Really? Yeah. I was getting visits by city council members. Was that an idea from your attorney at the time? or? Um, yeah, because, you know, they, they went through and they do a post-conviction report and then they want to know who you were prior to your crime. And then they want to know what you've been doing and they're just like, this doesn't make sense. Yeah, the law states this, but it doesn't always make sense and there's got to be a way around this. So I ended up I ended up fighting this, fighting it, fighting it. And then until the last day where I was done, like, I just wanted to leave. I told my parents, like, dude, just let me go to Australia. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. fucking like 160 pounds. I'm tired. I'm hurting here. Like I'm depressed. I'm so sad. Like I gotta get out of here because mm-hmm. it was that was the end of the road. Mm-hmm. So let's get the show on the road. I want to live my life. But they pulled it off, dude. They did an emergency stop on my deportation. They withdrew my guilty pleas and uh, they fucking they released me. I got released today. There was a riot in the jail. It was I didn't think I was gonna wow. go home, but and we saw the we've been to hell and back, dude. I've been to hell and back. I left there frail again. It took me it took me several months to really acclimate and get back to my, my own self. I took one of my girlfriend's Nehru's one day. I went out with her, and she looked at me, and she goes, you need to go home, shave your face, look in the mirror, and remember who the fuck you are. 
she's like go and do it like tonight go fucking remember who the fuck you are you know it's different to be in that place like when you do a crime and you go in there fine i can justify that i did the time like i i deserved it but this was like dude i didn't do anything wrong i paid my dues i'd been there you know and now you're back in that environment and then it's a hostile environment everybody just thinks ice or they think um, a detention facility but that's where that's the end of the road there's guys that have done short time that are going to get out and then there's guys that have done 10-year life sentences that are on their way out mm -hmm. and there's no classification so in a regular prison you know whether you're a aggravated criminal or you're you know, just to get white banded, did nothing. You know, you got minor infractions. They separate everybody. Over here, you're all in the same yard. And it's the end of the road. So, dude, the deputies are rough. You know, they're fucking rough. I had a hard time in there. Craziest, craziest experience in jail. I'm sure you've had uh, numerous of them. But can you think of the craziest experience? <laughs> yeah, the craziest experience was the, the, day, the day that I left was the riot that took place. You had, you know, a couple hundred people from a couple different races that really popped off and you know the riot gear came out and people were getting shot by beanbags and the helicopter landed and we were spent the whole day like on our bellies with our hands on our head and trying not to get in the mix and get shot because I didn't run with any politics in there like I was so past all of that mm -hmm. but that was a pretty wild never wild saw moment. a riot prior to that I'd never seen a riot. I'd been in fights in there. Yeah. I spent, like I said, I spent my 30th birthday in, in, in solitary confinement in there, which was a real low point in my life and for something so fucking retarded, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, this was all because you were selling marijuana, right? And it's legal now, baby. You know? Can you imagine that? How, yeah. How quickly things have changed within 10 years. Yeah, so many... <laughs> I, I, I sit back because of my charges and I think about it like, wow, like, wow, we've come a long, long ways, man. You're growing marijuana today. <clears throat> How much of that growing of marijuana has to do with you being involved in marijuana back in the day? It's interesting. Well, I feel like when I got back into the space, it was like I just I had a head start because I was doing it when I was younger. I knew about it. I knew how it moved. I understand the underbelly. And uh, nowadays you've got a bunch of heavy hitters with money trying to get into the space, but I don't care who you are, how much money you have, if you don't have somebody in the underbelly that knows how to run this California market, mm -hmm. it's a very, very challenging space to get into. So when I popped back into this, it was still a little bit rogue. It was gray, you know, where now we have um, regulations. It was still gray under Prop 215, under medicinal use only. So we were operating in that, but we were still, we were moving this thing. And uh, now it's progressed over the last, I would say, you know, a couple years from then. We've got Prop 64 that passed, and now we're fully compliant for recreational. And now we're waiting for the feds to get involved at this point. And right. then it's just, it's on. You know? So, okay, but my thing with that, with the feds getting involved, which I think they will soon. Yeah. My outlook on that would be if the feds are now getting involved, that means it's no longer really something I want to get myself into, right? If I'm somebody new trying to grow or retail, why would I want to be in it? Because they're going to be in my business. I got to now really pay my taxes. You do? It's no longer cash business. Right. Don't you think that would that would probably scare I, I, a lot of people away? I think, yeah. You would think, but I yeah. think everybody is just kind of hit with this green rush right now. They're just—it's so glorified 
that they just think that it's so easy and that they could make so much money doing it. But really, it is so goddamn expensive to operate in this compliant market between the regulations, the permits, the taxes, the testings, the distribution fees, and all the different agencies with their hand in your pocket. Yep. It's really like a regular business now. And it's cool, you know, if you have some big money now and you build a brand and your brand gets bought out. But I look at it like, man, we've got a depreciating asset. You know, I've got seven state licenses currently. And uh, as they stand right now, they're probably worth in the highs of, you know, 10 to 20 million bucks. Mm -hmm. One of them is a full operational business. And I feel like, well, more and more cities are going live. More and more people are buying these licenses that don't know what they're doing. There's going to be more and more failures, which is going to make it easier for people to buy in. So they're going to be, they're not, the value is not going to be there. And, and a then, shitload of competition, right? Dude, well, if, if it goes federally legal, dude, you look at Canada right now, if they just let Canadians bring their, you know, cannabis down here, or if they allow for Oregon to start distributing their weed across state lines, um, dude, they grow more weed than they need. Mm -hmm. So it's going to just really saturate the market. And I think the grant, the price of the, the price is going to just depreciate so much. Dude, they have like greenhouses larger than fucking football stadiums up there. And they grow like real high end boutique quality product. I'm not naive, dude. I've got a badass state-of-the-art facility in fucking downtown LA. The city's come through and told us that this is top three facilities that they've ever seen in Los Angeles because these are new. You know, mm -hmm. I'm across the street from the Jungle Boys. Dude, Ivan and those guys, they're retarded. They do some big, big things, but they've also been doing this for the last 15 or so years. So we came up. We're doing real good, but I'm still afraid. Like, I'm not naive, and I look at people, and I'm like, if you want to buy me out, dude, yeah. buy me out. But as soon as this goes federally legal and that institution money gets dropped in, I'm a cockroach, man. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to – as cool as it sounds, and when somebody from the outside looks at it, it looks so attractive. But really, it's, it's – it has been – one of business wise one of the most challenging things that i've done mm. and i'm a man that like i'm all about the in-between i love to see something through and then i get bored and currently it's like unfortunate it's like i we went from having nothing to going through all this compliance and all the hoops it was a you know i hit a i hit a bullseye on a moving target not i me and my team we hit a bullseye on a moving target awesome mm -hmm. and now what now it's like we're here and it's like you know what let's i'm not emotionally attached you know let's i like the medicinal use recreationally like i'm not a stoner mm -hmm. uh, you know can't it gives me anxiety so i'm not there dude let one of these bigger brands come out and take it over if i can sell and transition to something else i will yeah. up until then i'm going to stay in my lane yeah challenging you say the cannabis industry being a challenging business you've you had what five restaurants in the past and then the sixth being your your Mediterranean joint in seven, Anaheim? Seven. So six and one? So Yeah, so six sports bar pizzerias that my brother Rafi and I started. Actually, he started um, in 2001. And uh, we, we then, I took the second one after him, and then we grew it to a total of seven restaurants in North Orange County doing pizzas, pastas, salads, calzones, and a sports bar environment. Yeah. Giving back to the community. Like yeah. The, the the growth we had from what we... We made fucking pizzas, dude. What made you get out of that, though? What, you were just bored and wanted to do something else? Well, well that... We, we, started, we started making a lot of money yeah. and didn't know how to manage it because that's something we're never taught. We just thought this is going to be good forever and it was something about you got to stay relevant. Mm -hmm. And uh, it became a desk job and I didn't want that. I, when I made the most money is when I worked in that restaurant slamming dough and 
growing and you know working every day long hours long days and opening up these restaurants but once you had them then I wasn't working in the restaurant anymore I was sitting in a warehouse office with a basketball hoop inside and all these toys around and right. my friends would come hang out and we'd fuck around and right. it started to become a downward spiral for us you know we lost the drive so we weren't fully committed at that time the economy had changed um, so we just weren't there so I that was I didn't leave it but I wasn't involved in it as I should have been um, it started hemorrhaging us so I finally you know I met uh, my wife and things were changing I needed to like do something you know I can't be stuck like this so I thought I'd get back to the basics so I opened we opened as a family me and my brother we did this for my mom we opened a place called Medi Kitchen mm-hmm. it's an Armenian Lebanese restaurant we took everything that you know my mom was going through a tough time herself I figured this would be good therapy Perfect. for her yeah. I'd be in the kitchen with her and I really I went back in the kitchen and the, the restaurant when I look out the window literally across the street I could see Peps one of my stores yeah. where I, everybody in the community knew me so people would walk in and I'd be in the back fucking chopping vegetables and people would be like aren't you yeah yeah, that so, guy yeah, across the yeah, yeah, it was that guy too. They're like, "What are you doing?" Yeah, and I'm like, "Motherfucker, this is like therapy right yeah, here, chopping yeah. veggies." Yeah. So, dude, we did. I did that for a couple of years again in there, and then again, I was like, "This is this," for me was like, "I'm done." Like, I served this. I did it. I served the community. I motherfucked the food industry. Like, I get it. I'm just not passionate. I still love to cook and stuff, but I'm just not there, dude. Ready to move so on. Ready to do. I was ready else. to move on, and and then uh, get back this, to the mint this, weed. This chick. Jamie Alifacio walked walked into my life, into my restaurant, and I've known her family. Her younger brother used to work for me when I first opened Peps. At 18 years old, he was working for me, so I knew her. And uh, she was talking cannabis biz, and uh, I was just invested into a company called Idrisel, which is a cannabis company. It was a standardized, measured, consistent dosage from an FDA-approved sterile laboratory. Doctor can write a prescription on a pad, and insurance companies were paying for it, like, way ahead of the time. So she and I fucking raised a grip of money for this company, and uh, we are now currently, like, the largest shareholders. Um, unfortunately, the the owner, the CEO, is an egotistical maniac, larger than life, super fucking brilliant German dude, brilliant, but too controlling and too, he's just... He's a narcissist. So I wish the company well, and I know he's not sitting on his hands, and I see it. I, I follow him on his Instagrams and his Twitters, and all, I see what they're doing, and I know they're going to do something big, but we've currently taken a seat back. But that's when she and I joined forces together to take on uh, this industry together. But we were both business owners, hard workers, driven, smart, come from the street background, um, hard knocks, both of us. And uh, dude, we went in. We took up like uh, three fifty-seven thousand square foot greenhouses in Salinas, and then we started mm. this forty thousand square foot building in downtown LA. And now we're in beautiful Montebello, California, <laughs> about to build another massive manufacturing facility. That yeah, we really? just we just got our we have our state approval. We've got our city approval. Oh. And uh, I just finished my mechanical engineer and electrical and plumbing plans to submit. But we're go. We're just gonna build. I'm about three months out from down here so dude i'm still i'm still in this lane but again i'm feeling that the drive the passion is not there there's you and many others that are going to be in montbello growing right yeah i'm actually not going to grow okay because the the growing cannabis is one of the most challenging and it's a uh, commodity spiral down to the bottom when these bigger guys come online it's going to be very challenging to grow what are you going to so do i'm doing uh manufacturing manufacturing retail delivery and distribution so manufacturing is 
uh, these making of everybody smoking these vape carts or the edibles or concentrates and dabs you would manufacture those so we we did it we did a partnership with a group out of Seattle Washington called root sciences these guys are like the king of extraction they struck one deal in one, every state and did me and little Jamie I should say she finagled these dudes mm -hmm. to like work with us it hasn't worked out the way we wanted it to but that's who we've partnered with mm -hmm. and uh, so we got some badass equipment German equipment which is like the Bugatti of equipments that are out there and these guys have the knowledge because they've been doing it for multiple years and they're the global distributor for this equipment mm -hmm. so yeah we're going to build this facility out here in, in the Montebello here soon and be pumping out compliant oil mm. and uh, getting medicine out to the street recreational and medicinally it's a lot going on man a lot, a lot, a lot in the cannabis space I've never smoked in my life good for you never in my life and why I they say there's several different benefits from smoking marijuana. You believe that? 100%. You know, marijuana in the United States, we have a pain scale at anywhere of 1 to 10, okay? In the United States, from 1 to 3, we give you uh, Motrin and ibuprofen and aspirin and Advil. Cool. From 4 and up, you break your arm, that ain't deathly pain that's not excruciating nerve pain mm -hmm. we start prescribing opiates like norcos and vicodins and any kind of other opiate that's out there uh, oxys and uh, we have created a massive drug problem so we believe that from one to three and four you have your over-the-counters from four to seven you can use cannabis to treat your pain eight and up when you've got chronic pain and you've got nerve damage, like cannabis ain't going to help you. So you probably need a heavier narcotic. Mm -hmm. But when they're prescribing people in that pain level opiates, dude, you're that we are the problem. Mm -hmm. They're creating the drug companies know what the fuck they're doing. Mm -hmm. They're prescribing these things and you got a broken arm. So let's say you break your arm, they give you a Norco, you go home, you eat them for a week, two weeks. Well, now you're a little bit dependent, man. So when you were chilling, you took off at of work because you wrote you that you didn't have to go to work for a couple of weeks. People take advantage of that. In our society, next thing you've been popping pills, you run out, your doctor won't give you another one. He might. After you take that, you're calling your friend, hey, you have any Vicodins? Oh, okay, cool. I've got yeah. some I didn't take. Next thing you know, you're an addict. Next thing you know, you can't get your drug from the pharmaceutical, and now you're buying the street version of that drug. Mm -hmm. And that's how the drug problem really has started and sustained itself in the United States. So to answer your question, 100%, the plant has medicinal value. Absolutely. Take away the hypnotic, THC, right? THCA. When you strike it with a lighter, it decarboxylates. It knocks off the A, it makes it THC, changes the molecule, you get high. So if you don't, if you don't raise the temperature to make it active, you can juice it, and it has so many nutraceutical values, the plant. Mm. You know, there's got so many cannabinoids. The human body has receptors. Like, we have opiate receptors. They're known. Well, now they've realized, and there's white papers written, that there's an endocannabinoid system. And we, as human beings, are cannabinoid deficient. Now, we have all these ghosts, Parkinson's, and we have uh, cancers, and we have uh, multiple different things people are getting that we don't know how to treat. And is it because they took cannabis out of our system, you know, 100 years ago, and now we have two generations that are endocannabinoid deficient and it's causing all of these things now we don't guarantee that but it's starting to look that way yeah so mm -hmm. i don't rec i tell my my family like mm -hmm. take the cbd oil you know it's like taking fish oil 
use hemp seed and put it on your cereal. Like, not that you have to get high. The reg- not to get high. If you don't have pain, but you still want to ingest some of that shit. Like, I don't know. Oh, no, I, ha- I have hemp seeds, too. I put in my shake in the mornings. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Se- okay. Anything hemp, like, you should put, you should be putting it into your body. Honestly, like, you should be putting it in. It will benefit you. And, you know, it ain't the all it savior of everything, but it's, if, if there's so much resistance against it because it, it does cure. And if you do the research, like, we can't say it cures, you know, but people get sued for that. Right. But it's, it's got a proven track record right now that's earning it merits. And, uh, you know, there's people out there that are carrying cancers with it. There's. The research is out there. It's coming. You've, now they're going to figure out, Big yeah. Pharma is going to figure out how to synthesize it, right? They've already tried with Marinol, but why the fuck not take the real thing, man? Mm-hmm. Like, why use a synthesized version if it's really there and not just grow real, clean, compliant, tested, mm-hmm. pest-free, you know, product? You've experienced, talking about products, you've experienced with DMT and... Ooh, yeah. Com- combo. Combo. <laughs> That's uh, plant therapy. Would you call that like uh, the sister of ayahuasca, or it is ayahuasca, or? Yeah. So, DMT, dimethyltryptamine, is the active ingredient in ayahuasca. Ayahuasca is a brew that ancient Amazonians have figured out. This is straight fucking alien technology, <laughs> and have figured <laughs> have figured out how to take out of the thousands of species species of uh, vines and trees and plants to take a, a vine and a root a tree bark from a, two different plants and boil them and make this brew that uh you know the mm. shaman will give you administer and to drink to have these profound uh, spiritual transcending uh, experiences so the dmt is the active ingredient in that DMT is found in, you know, in every ecosystem. It can be extracted from the grass in front of your house. It's your body produces it in its pineal gland. Um, it's it's something your body's it, it has in it already. It knows exactly what to do with it. It is the most powerful psychedelic known to mankind. Yet it's not a drug. It should not be masqueraded as a drug. This is a hormone, and it's some really serious shit. And it's one of the most controlled substances on the planet. It's very, very challenging to get, but really it should be on the cover of Time magazine and everybody should know and everybody should experience it. You know, something that's similar to it would be like, you know, eating, you know, a handful of mushrooms and having a profound experience. But the DMT is just, it's not for everybody. It's not something that you, you read about or you hear, it's kind of making its movement now. You start hearing more and more about it nowadays. you got all these silicone tech guys like going out to, um, Peru and doing ayahuasca and stuff. Hey, more power to him. As long as it's creating an awakening on, you know, on Mother Earth, dude, then I'm good with it. But it shouldn't be uh, used recreationally. It's yep. not something like that. What made you do it? I've, I started experimenting with psychedelics from a very young age. I was eating a lot of acid in high school. Um, just trying to find myself, just trying to see what else was out there. And it kind of removes the veil and gives you an outlook and a different perspective on life and scenarios and situations. It removes ego. You know, they don't want you to not take psychedelics because they're afraid you're going to jump off a fucking building and kill yourself. It's because you're going to wake the fuck up. You know, you're Mm -hmm. woke at that point. Mm -hmm. So I was experimenting with a lot of uh, mushrooms and LSD from a young age. And it was something that I heard about. I heard about, you know... uh, Joe Rogan talking about it and I was doing my research on it but I just I just couldn't find it you know and I started kind of looking for it but it was, I, it was something that I couldn't find but I just talked about it for about four years man 
I researched it and researched it and researched it because I was I was intrigued. I wanted to know, you know, uh, spiritually what was going on because there's more than meets the eye mm-hmm. in today's society, obviously. So I was in I was in Canada with a group snowboarding and shit with some friends up in Whistler and a couple friends and a couple randoms and somebody came up to me and said hey Chris hey man we have some DMT do you want to try it and you would think after all that would be like fuck yeah and I was like absolutely not Mm -hmm. not right here not with you not right now you know it was like oh okay that was the end of it no pressure no nothing did they do it in front of you uh it wasn't. It's not something that you just do in front of me. They did experiment with it in the, the room, one of the rooms there. Okay, but I mean, the you, follow, the you follow, didn't see him hallucinate or anything no, like that, right? They, no, no, okay. no, no. And then the this, the the next day, I was at the top of Whistler, and you know, you're at I don't know, thirteen or seventeen thousand feet. Just real surreal, epic day. It was like a spiritual day. I came back down. I had it was an amazing time, and the same dude, his name's Lewis, and he was just like, "Hey, Chris." I saved you some of that DMT. Do you want to try it? And I just was like, absolutely. <laughs> but I'd like to be alone, mm-hmm. you know, if that's okay. And uh, so I said, I'm going to take a shower, and then you could come back in here. So I did. We took a shower, and I, I took a shower. We, <laughs> I took a shower. I came back into my room. I was just chilling. He came in, and I don't know how much to fucking smoke. I, I, I really didn't know. I'd never even fucking seen it before. Um, so he packed it in the pipe, and... It's crazy. I've shared this story with my old man once telling him, man, you need to smoke some DMT. <laughs> but, uh, dude, I just took like, I took like three or four really massive rips of this shit and blew it out. And, you know, like I said, I'd done a lot of partying in my life and I can at any time as deep as I was walk into a bathroom, look in the mirror, pull fucking baseline and know that I'm fucked up and get back to the party. Mm-hmm. I was sitting there and afraid for my life because something was taking over me that I'd never felt and that I had I really was losing control and I felt like I was being pulled into the rabbit hole like just something was pulling me like down and I'm fighting was trying to fucking get myself out and I'm, mm. and from the third party you know I heard this one has a very strong mind and I just would not go and then the silhouette of a being appeared and put its hand out to me and just told me come those footsteps I heard and then come and then I felt like my <laughs> this sounds crazy it's called astral projection when I did the research you're actually if you believe this stuff your soul can leave its vessel which is your body and you have this real profound experience and trying to ex- trying to explain it to you right now it's like trying to explain a kaleidoscope to a blind man <laughs> it's just really not possible no, that's but, good keep going but like no, the, no, no. you know the hairs on my arms yeah. and back on my neck stand yeah. up talking about this and like you, you cross, man, and not everybody crosses, but you cross to a place that they say where the souls lie. Like there's a, there's a book that I used to read when I was when I was locked up. It's called um, Many Masters, Many Lives by Dr. Brian Weiss, and uh, he just to jump off track, and he describes one of his patients. He does hypnosis with who's got multiple reincarnations. She always describes a place where the souls rest before they come back. And it's like after I did that and had this experience and came back and it took me a long, long time to process this. And uh, it's like, wow, now I think that's like, fuck, I've been there. Like, mm. You've actually some people smoke it and they get stuck in the waiting room and some people smoke it and they actually break. You have a breakthrough. Your peripheral bridge actually breaks through. There is more than your five senses out there just because we can't see it or feel it or hear it doesn't mean it doesn't exist mm. there's things out there that do exist and this allows you to open up to a different 
realm. When you when you saw that silhouette come, you know, come with me, put your hand out, where where did it lead you to? Dude, again, it's so hard to process that thought, but it was just like a again, like a, another realm, just a different world. And the thing is with DMT, it's not it's not like you eat acid and you have a psychedelic experience, an individual one. This is like when you interview people from all around the globe, they all describe the same type of place. So there is something. It's like when you die, it's not like you just turn off. It's like you enter a different space, a different dimension. And that's what it's like. But processing it, it's like trying to come back to you and explain to you the dream I just had. Like you know you were there. You know you saw it, but you can't put it into words. Like you just – you can't. But I, I – I, ended up it really fucked me up actually like it mind fucked me spiritually emotionally on so many different levels yet it made me so much more aware and open and it, it gave me way more than it took obviously but it, it just it stripped me down um to the raw form of whom who i am and made me really comfortable in my skin at that not that i wasn't but way more comfortable in my mm. skin like i knew something that you didn't you know i've been somewhere that you haven't like i have an understanding of things that one percent of this fucking population on the goddamn planet like has known and more people should and i went on a search dude i went on a search to like educate myself like i talked to psychiatrists and psychologists and friends and and tigs and i just my whole always thing what the fuck was that? Like, mm. dude, I've done all these. I've done these drugs. I've done these pornography. What the fuck was that? And you can't explain it. So I started reading all these books and trying to process it. But the plant therapy gives you what you need. And there's always going to be these questions because we don't know the afterlife. But we know that there's more than what's here. And I'm so much more comfortable in this life than I was before based off of that experience. I've gone back now. I've actually found it. I had a bunch of it. I didn't touch it for fucking two years. Huh. And then I dabbled with it once to see, because I wanted to be in a controlled environment. And then I knew what it was. And then I blasted off with it once more time. And now I just don't. People ask me all the time, you know, would you do it? I, said, I just don't feel the need to. Uh -huh. But um, You've graduated my it. My partner and I have just booked a trip to uh, Peru coming up in September and November, actually, where we're going to go to a uh, ayahuasca retreat in Peru. Mm -hmm. So we're going to do a... Has she done it before? Uh, the DMT she has smoked, but she's never crossed. And uh, and I tell you, it's not for everybody. Like, sometimes it's just you're not prepared. So the, it sounds crazy, but there's entities or beings that allow you to cross and not mm -hmm. when it's your time to. And uh, so she hasn't actually crossed, and I always give her shit. Like, you don't really know, because if you did, you wouldn't talk about it the way you do. So now we're going to go. We're going to do the ayahuasca, and then maybe do a little trip through and see a Machu Picchu while we're there. But I'm really looking forward to the, to do the, the actual ayahuasca in Peru. What's your wife think of all this? <clears throat> she, <laughs> the first time I brought up drugs in my with my wife, well, two years back, she was just like... What the yeah. fuck? <laughs> little what? conservative Armenian oh, girl living at home when you're yeah. dating her. Yeah. yeah. So I've never exposed her to anything like that where she, you know, she's very much non – my wife is very, very confident and non-judgmental, but just never had that desire to experience anything on that level. You know, that's just not her. And she likes to be in this bubble and she likes her material and her – you know, she's not that – she has a lot of depth, but she's not there.
So highly educated, very well-rounded, very confident, very smart, very beautiful. Like she's got it going on, you know, on so many different levels. But she's never really, she lived, her parents gave her a good life. She Mm -hmm. didn't struggle with any of these pains and stuff that she, maybe I had past things from past lives I had to work out. I don't know. But I was testing myself from a very, very young age, so she wasn't there. Now, currently, she's had a couple deaths in the family, and she's fucking, what what is death, you know? Mm What's going on? What happens? I just don't get it. I just don't understand. And I just, I hope my in-laws don't listen to this, but I'm always like, D- maybe you need to eat a bag of mushrooms or fucking <laughs> blast off and try some DMT, you know? You think she'd do it? She's, she's definitely, I will never, yeah. I'm never going to be like, hey, you should try this. But she knows that it's available. And if she ever <laughs> felt like she wanted to question and entertain it, hey, look, man, going through life, going through life without having a psychedelic experience is like going through life without having sex and your human experience here on this planet like you should try it so they're not going to harm this is not a synthetic drug that's going to fucking kill you this is only going to make you better you know people have bad trips because they have too much ego or they're hiding too many things and what scares them is the reality of themselves it's their face falls off or their mask falls off and that's what fucks you up but if you don't have that, you're not carrying that with you, dude. You have a real, beautiful, profound experience. And you can do the research and the data. It's there, dude. Like, it's there. It's not just me telling you this. Like, it's fucking there. It's just suppressed. What about the time when you met your wife and she – was she ever like, no, you've got too much ink, you can't meet my parents? Or <laughs> was it – we could. This is, a, this is a girl at the time living with her parents. She was. Conservative Armenian family. Yes, And very. dad's going to be like, who the fuck is this guy yeah. taking my innocent daughter? Oh, man. No chance. So I met her at a – I met her after April 24th at a uh, – uh, the nonprofit the event that they do. I forget mm-hmm. what it's called. Anyway, uh, so I met her at this concert that was after the protest, and uh, I didn't go to the protest, and I saw her there. I was staring at her like I just knew mm-hmm. that this is this is the girl for me, like, which I've never felt before in my life. Anyway, she long story short, she blew me off. She blew me off. I tracked her down through a friend. I found her anyway. We have our history moving forward. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. It, we clicked. Going to your question, I got introduced to her brother first, and he was just like holy shit, Ani, like, what the fuck, how are you going to bring him home? I didn't have my hands tattooed then, but I had everything else, like, I'm heavily tattooed, and it was definitely an issue, and the first time I went to her house, I came in, and we're in some, like, stage military jacket my friend had made, it was pretty loud, I don't know what I was thinking, but my father-in-law didn't even come down, and I don't blame him. Okay, but father-in-law knew about who you were, and, or, or, or did your... They didn't care that Karnik Sarkisian is my father and shit. Like, you would think in the Armenian community that's a little bit of clout. Yeah. It didn't mean dick. But did your wife at the time say, listen, Dad, I'm giving you a warning. He's got ink around no, him. No, no, okay. no, no. Okay. It was not discussed. So no it, tattoos. So I went into this covered up for about six months. Okay. In the valley. Why is hot. he? Why isn't he meeting you though? Why isn't he? No, he down? met me afterwards. Oh. Not, not that first date. First time I picked his daughter up, he didn't come down and meet me. Why? But eventually. It was the first time she'd brought a man home to okay. her house, okay. so he wasn't okay. prepared for that. Okay. And okay. I, don't, I don't blame the dude. I okay. get it. I got yeah. a daughter now, oh, so for I sure. get it. So you, got, I, you got a shotgun and a shovel now. Yeah, I come to <laughs> a couple of them, <laughs> and she's going to learn how to use it herself. <laughs> exactly. But uh, I came over to several times. I met the mom. The mom and I jived. Like, we were just cool, but I still I was covered up. Mm-hmm. So for a long time, I came to their home, and I was always buttoned up to the throat and buttoned down to the hands. And then one day, it's summertime, and then we're in the backyard, and... 
my father-in-law goes in Armenian, like, son, like, it's hot. Why are you always wearing a jacket or you're covered up? And I just looked at on and I looked at him and I said, I just, I just can't do this anymore. And I just, I unbuttoned and I rolled up my sleeve and my mother-in-law's face just went white, dude. She's like, oh, oh my God, you have a tattoo? And I said, yeah, I do. I have just one tattoo. <laughs> just one really big one. <laughs> just one tattoo. And it, honestly, now, bro, like, yeah. they don't know. Again, they don't notice. And yeah. my, and on, uh, she's never been into them. But she's like, I just, I love you mm-hmm. for you being this way. I support it. But it was never her thing. But I think she thinks they're cool. She has none. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not big on. I would I wouldn't say not to, but I'm happier if she doesn't. Yeah, you know, it's not for up. her. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't want. Again, I don't something I don't want. If she wants it, sure. she's welcome to have it. But yeah. it's not her. It's not her thing. Here's one that honestly I've been thinking about all week, and I asked you pre-show about it to make sure you're okay to talk about it. Is your dad? Yeah. Um, he went through some stuff. He served his time in jail for I think five years. Yeah, he was sentenced to five years. That's yeah. correct. He did a little less time, you know. Yeah. Good behavior, but yeah, we can we can touch on that. So I mean, some of you guys probably your listeners know. Yeah. Some of you don't, but my father is Karnik Sarkisian. He's a uh, very predominant Armenian revolutionary singer and activist. And in the early '80s, uh, our agenda and uh, was very hot, and there was you know these young groups, uh, organizations that were you know committing what nowadays we would call acts of terror but back then we looked at them as armenian freedom fighters and fighting for our cause and creating awareness you know we didn't have social media back then and platforms that people could get out and you know speak their voice and you know get information across the world instantly with one tweet and this sounds wild and crazy but these guys conspired to uh to bomb the turkish embassy in philadelphia back in 1982 so we were just young kids at that mm-hmm. time, you know, four or five years old. My brother was probably six years old, and uh, my dad went down on, you know, if you look him up in the L.A. Times, they have Faces of Terror, and they got the L.A. Five, which was uh, five guys, which I currently, you know, some know very well, some of them. Some of them have grown to be very predominant individuals and pillars of the world, you know, and um, continued on their path of uh, justice and many different platforms now with education. But these guys were young and they came with scars and wounds because their fathers and their forefathers were, you know, brutally attacked and murdered. So you can't, it's hard to like say, I'm gonna, you, I can justify it because we were raised that way, but you know, uh, it doesn't, two wrongs don't make a right either. But you know, I try to put yourself in that shoes and I support him and I'm proud of who he is and what he's done. and. Good luck at the time. It you know that they didn't really see the whole thing through because they got you know they got caught um, transporting uh, transporting the explosives from here. They were kids, dude. They were in their twenties, mm. conspiring to do this, like taking explosives from California on a plane to Philadelphia. Like mm. holy fucking shit! Like I tell them, what the fuck were you thinking? Because we've had this candid conversation. Like, what the fuck were you thinking? Wow. How dude. did he get, I mean, security obviously then wasn't the same, dude, it but. It didn't matter back then, yeah. You didn't have x-ray machines and shit that they did. Yeah. Now that they went through, they just really, they wow. fucking checked it in. They literally just made had a, bags of explosives. Made a bomb and fucking sent it with their baggage. Wow. And they made it over there, but they were tipped off. Somehow they were tipped off from the inside and uh, they were waiting for them there. They waited for one of the guys to grab the bag. When he grabbed the bag, they t- you know, they were going to take him down. I think he just let the bag keep going. 
But basically, they took all of them down at the same time. We were in Heim Hills. My dad was at home. I remember this night clearly. The doorbell rang, and I used to like run down the hallway and slide in my socks to the door. Mm-hmm. And I just opened the door, and I ran back. And as soon as the door opened, there was F- I didn't know them. But it was the FBI to just quickly just close the door because they didn't know what to expect. Shut the door. And then they opened it, and they peeked inside. And they looked at my dad, and they just told him, I think he knew because they knew that something had gone on in Philly that I didn't grab it. It's hot. Sure. So I think they were all expecting it. And, um, <clears throat> you know, later down we hear that the whole SWAT team had taken over Serrano and Anaheim Hills and the helicopter was out and the whole street was blocked off and they were bringing down the fucking, the conspirer, you know, the, the mastermind of all of this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, dude, yeah, they took my dad down right there and, you know, all the boys at the same time and, they did. They fought their case for many, many years. Uh, fortunately for them, they fell in the lap of a judge who, I guess, but I can't say believed in their cause, but had compassion for their cause. And um, if this was a modern day, they would have been fucked. That's it. Life, life sentence, done. You guys are done. And I'm sure if this bomb went off, things would have been different too. But, you know, they got, they, more than conspiracy, they got uh, the transportation. There's some conspiracy, but transportation of explosives. And uh, some of them did a little more time than the other. But with KS, he did, uh, you know, just under five years at Terminal Island. And uh, so we spent our teenage years, you know, going back and forth to prison to visiting our dad in fucking Long Beach, basically. Yeah, and it it is rough, you know. Everybody's dads are around and families are around. And had my mom struggling to fucking, she did. I mean, she provided us fucking everything we wanted, everything we needed. That woman would provide, but at the end of the day, your dad ain't there. So what do you do? You rebel. Ain't nobody tell you what to do. And then when you get out, you play the whole "well, you weren't here" card. You know, mm-hmm. the victim card. Mm-hmm. So we've been through some. We've been through it. We've You're four or five years old, though. I mean, do you remember everything? Or not? Well, the case took 10 years or okay. eight years. Okay. So when he actually went in, okay. I was uh, 11, 12, and 13, okay. or 12, 13, and 14. Yeah. So I remember everything. Yeah. I remember one time being in their court case, going to their trial, because the judge, I mean, the attorney wanted us, the family, sure. to be there. Sure. But obviously not. I didn't know what the organizations and what they were doing with this case at that time as childhood but i knew when the chart when the case finished you know almost a decade later and they went in to serve their time i was a teenager but you knew why he was going to jail why at that he, time yeah oh absolutely okay well, you know we grew up in our Armenian community and yeah. you know, we went to ayf camp growing up where yeah. you kind of you know they give you um they we, we were educated you know, they taught us our culture. They taught us our history. Uh, they taught us about Armenian freedom fighters and things like this that were taking place that were praised overseas with the Lisbon Five. And you know, we've all read the you know the trial of Solomon Telelion. And uh, dude, we don't. I don't feel bad about it. So. What'd your mom think at the time? Dude, they were young, dude. They, yeah. they, if he was fucking, you know, in his early twenties uh, at the time, and she was just, you know, she and, and she was probably, actually at that time she was probably in her early twenties. You know, they came here. They had Rafi at eighteen years old. Uh, he had me when he was like 21, 22. So they were young. Mm-hmm. She was just in survival mode, and she mm-hmm. just backed her husband. Mm-hmm. Whatever she, whatever he needed her to do, that woman did. She just kind of basically took orders unfortunately it didn't work out for her at the end but it that's what that's really what happened and you've always had a strong relationship with your dad right my dad i just think he's one of the coolest dudes you know he's got some crazy stories and he's got crazy experiences and who he's built himself to be from the outside look as a father figure you know he had his shortcomings 
um, due to him being a father from a very, very young age and then living, being a celebrity and, you know, being an entertainer globally. You can't take that away. He's not your average dad. So yeah. some of his actions are frowned upon by society. And, yeah, they don't look right. And I, I get it. And I respect that. I respect my mother. Like, it ain't fucking cool. I get it. But I try to. I'm because I'm non-judgmental and I understand life from a different perspective. I'm able to sit back and separate that emotion and try to isolate him for who himself, rather than how society you know, right. perceives you. And when I do that, it's like I hate to say it, like I, I just I just fucking get it. Yeah. Wrong, right? I don't look at that. I'm not about wrong or right. I'm not here to fucking judge you. Mm-hmm. But do I get it? I can get it. Mm-hmm. Do I agree with it? Probably not. Would I do it? Probably not. But do I get it? Fuck yeah, I get it. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, dude, he fucking, uh, he's been through it. So we've had our challenges, but one thing for that man, he was always like, hey, dude, you can do it. My, my rules in my house growing up was if you leave the house, you lock the door. No fucking curfew. Didn't fucking matter how old we were. We were fucking young. We would go out. We would do our thing. After AYFs and stuff, we would go. We were kids. We would go. He wasn't around, or when he came back, 13, 14, when I was home, I, we would just go out in the street, hang out late night. We had little girlfriends, 16, 17 years old. No curfews. Just lock the door when you came home. And listen, you can do anything you want in life. If I shot out some windows or clipped some cables or something, like he wouldn't judge you. Boys will be boys was his thing. Get into fights. He didn't fucking care. It was, you get caught with drugs and you're fucked. Mm. And what did I do? Mm. I fucking busted. Out of all the things he lets you do. Don't get fucking busted. (laughs) All the things. But, dude, he was there through my courts. He stood by my side. He visited me all the time. And so we have that bond that people don't know. Like, I've sat behind that fucking screen with my dad and just fucking, like, we've bonded. He's been there. I've been there. There's a different society there. Uh, That was my college. You know, that's where I learned so much about myself and so many different creatures of this planet. The lows, the darks of the dark. I've read hundreds of books while I was in there. I exercised. I came out fit, you know. Mm-hmm. So we've connected on that level. You see Although, him? You see him often? I do. You know, we, he has now moved on. He's married. He's got another child. He's got a, He's got another family. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very fucking weird. It's hard for my mom. My mother, mm-hmm. you know, she now currently lives with me, and it's awesome. We have a really, really core, cool core, you know, home base. Um, that really functions and it's good for everybody on many many levels and he's got his own family that people don't get it like i don't i don't i've he, i've got a brother that i don't really know like I've, I've seen him and i've met him once but i don't know there's a huge 35 year gap between us you know and he's got a wife that i just i don't want to disrespect him i just there's sure. no interest like what what do you want me to do? Be buddy, buddy? It sure. ain't going to happen. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Especially but the strong relationship you have your mother. I won't do that to yeah. her. You know, yeah. if I went up to her and my wife, it would be like, oh, how do you do it? And I said, right. Listen, this is how it is. This is my old man. So you guys can judge or you have your opinions. And that's, I respect that too, because I get it. I fucking get why you feel that way, but you can't understand or get why I feel the way I do. So I keep, I keep my distance. That's my private time. He comes and goes. Uh, I see him regularly and we chat like friends. And dude, it's we've created a really good relationship under the circumstances. And I think, dude, it's this is my dad. You can't take that away. Yeah. The years are limited. Life is not forever. So why not just make the best of it? And I, I truly have, dude. Yeah. Good I try you, to man. do that with everything, man. Good for you. Yeah. That's a really good way to, to live life, man, because you hold that stuff in, your grudges in. <laughs> I don't think that's a way to live. Uh, does he live in the States or is he out of the country? Yeah, he does. He just moved. He was in Beirut for a very long time. And uh, he's moved back. They live here in Orange County. Cool. cool. Yeah, they do. Yeah. A few more things and um, we'll go get something to eat. Let's do it. 
being a um, getting back to the to the business aspect, being your own boss can be lonely sometimes. Decisions can affect families, etc. Um, most of those decisions can come on the fly. Really, it was funny the other day. I was watching a motivational speaker, and I never thought this because I've never had kids before. Yeah. And I'm really responsible for myself. I, you know, I, I, I run a business today. It's my family business. I'm responsible for a lot of people, a lot of families, right. my own family, but not my own own family, right? And I don't have a wife. I don't have kids. So I'm really concentrating on myself, really responsible for myself. And he said that once you have a family, a wife, a kid, your motivation is like through the roof. Right now, you really have something to look forward to. You have something you have to work for. That's right. Yeah, I feel like it's the same. I feel like we're kind of in that same boat. When you were, th- whatever, 30, 35, you were kind of, eh, you know, I'm doing my thing. Kind of like the pizza thing. You were like, eh, kind of. And then you had your wife, you had your kid, and you're like, okay, it's game on. I gotta go now. Yeah, you need to step it up, man, because you realize that look, some of us are, some people are born into money, or they have something to fall back on, and some people don't. But, dude, if you don't get up and check yourself every day and set goals and reach those goals and keep fighting for more goals and wanting something, and it's not about materialistic things. It's all about progression. If you're not staying progressive, you're going to lose at this game of life. And now you've got another, you got a child or a wife, somebody financially you got to support. But, again, you need to, you need to raise a strong-minded, confident uh, child with as little as insecurities as possible. Yeah, for sure. And they're watching you, dude. They're watching you. They're paying attention. Um, I've learned a lot over the years, man. I learned a lot, a lot, a lot from business, a lot of from these experiences that I had, a lot from having a, this relationship that I've had, and uh, all these things keep me motivated. But it's so easy not to be as well, mm-hmm. you know. It's so when you're a business owner, if there's some money coming in, and you you can get comfortable, you know. When you have a boss, someone's not riding you. When you're the owner, ain't nobody riding you at that point. It's you and yourself. It's you and how much you want to achieve and how much you want to put in, how much effort you want to put, how much drive do you have? You need to burn your own fuel constantly, yep. daily, daily. And that's what separates a lot of people. Some people don't want it. No doubt. They, and it, your brother brought up a really good point when we were at that barbecue a couple of weeks ago. He was ta- he was saying one of his employees was saying, man, it's got to be good to be your own boss. You can oh, wake yeah. up when you want to do your thing. And he's like, you know, it is and it's not. It's great because I don't have to listen to anybody tell me what to do. But at the same time, I got to stay motivated all the time because I'm not responsible for just myself, my family. I'm responsible for you too, man. That's right. You know, and he's so right because you need, you got to be motivated at all times. Especially like you're saying, when you're, you're a business owner and you have multiple, for us, we had multiple restaurants at the time and now we have these multiple facilities and the dude, if you put all the employees together, there's, you know, a hundred people underneath you. And it's like, dude, if you buckle they buckle. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So and that's, by the way, that's a lot of pressure. A lot of times, that's times two, times three of their kids, right? So you're really responsible for 300 up, people, 400 and people. I think that, and not everybody who goes into that space understands it. And looking from the outside in, you just, they don't get it. They just, again, they think it's glorified, always from the outside. People used to tell me, oh, you got all these restaurants. Mm-hmm. It's like, no motherfucker, nobody sprinkled goddamn fairy dust all across mm-hmm. Orange County mm-hmm. and built these restaurants. Mm-hmm. Like, we went out there and we fucking worked. Yep. We were out there slamming fucking dough every day. People at the bar fucking laughing at me because I was making people pizzas those assholes are probably still sitting at my bar today fucking drinking their beers right so exactly everyone's different dude but they don't they don't get it what's the future like what's chris in 10 years dude i just want to like i want to obviously you want uh financial freedom but not so i can just sit on my ass and golf every day Mm -hmm. um i want to develop personalities man i want to give back to communities 
um, I find myself being a motivational speaker. Mm-hmm. You know, I, in the past, when I got out of the situation with the jails and stuff, I did. I did quite a bit of time going and talking to kids, with, like uh, youth leadership programs in Anaheim. Uh, I went and spoke at the Tiger Woods Learning Center. I used to work with uh, abused women and children. Uh, the city of Anaheim gave me a, a humanitarian award a few years back, a proclamation on behalf of 250,000 people for. And this is shit that I don't. When I went in, if I spoke, it's like I don't even know why mm-hmm. you would give that to me. Like what I do on a daily basis, like that is just who I am. I would want to spend more time on things like that. You know, financially, business-wise, I see myself getting out of cannabis, um, trying to trying to transition into real estate real estate development. I find that that will probably be the next phase of business, which can fulfill what I'm trying to get to because I think real estate is one of the only things that once it's built out and your properties you have them and they're paid off your mortgages you just have you know mailbox money coming in every month so and to get to that point you need to earn a a pile first so I think I'm about to transition into that part of my life God willing everything stays you know I'm blessed I do work hard but I see myself transitioning from what I'm doing into that real estate and then you know I'm hoping at that time I'm still going to be young man and I want to be able to give back travel around the world I don't know build wells help communities build homes Um, I don't know where it's going to go but I know that there's more I've done a lot I've seen a lot I've achieved more than I ever thought that I would but I've broken loose from that now I feel like the sky is the limit at this point man I want to be able to give back I'd like to share my story dude it's like when I have kids that follow me on Instagram and stuff and people that I've come across friends cousins brothers and they're so inspired and it's like for a while I didn't get it and I say okay they look at you from this perspective they see these businesses and they're into the cannabis and they see cool cars and I'm not flashy with my shit but I you know I got some cool shit and they see that but I'm not pompous about it so when they want to reach out and hear it's like I'm there for them I want to talk to them I want to I'm, I'm, it, it, it inspires me knowing that I inspire them it keeps me driving because I know they're watching mm-hmm. well it's important too with that next generation coming up realizing what's good and what's bad so if 100%. they're around you and seeing that and the successful person starting with nothing then that's when you know they're on the right track. They are, and it's become yeah. so cookie cutter. Like you go to school, you get your degree, you do this, and it's. <laughs> I think I think that though, when I used to go talk to the kids at this youth leadership program, and I think the parents, they're really uh, academic driven kids, and I used to go in there and keep it real like this, and talk the way I talk, and tell them that. You know, you don't have to get out of school and go straight to college. Like yeah. you can go travel, and the education you get from traveling, and you can be an entrepreneur. And you know, there. And I think the parents would all turned off, but mm-hmm. dude, I would get blown up by emails by these kids because they were like, "Wow, that's sure." I, so I connect yeah. to that, and, and I'm so being different. told it's wrong. Yeah, yeah. man. So you, not everybody has to be a fucking doctor or a lawyer, and I get it. The parents want that stability and that security because that's what society's driving us to be. But right. dude, it doesn't mean that that's what's going to you know make you happy it right. comes down to happiness at the end progression and happiness so how many kids are you going to have in the next 10 years dude i have one <laughs> uh, she wants another Ollie's one right? having baby fever you know she's <laughs> she, got baby she, t- she told me to ask you that question i'm sure she did <laughs> you know listen it's, it's her human experience and i would never rob her of that yeah and, you know, we, you know, yeah we are active yeah. it just did if you if you're in having luck you're not having luck no, so it is what it is, but i'm i'm fortunate and blessed that we have the one and my daughter mila is she just started her first day of kindergarten yesterday, and it just blew awesome. me away, dude. She's yeah. so smart. She's so articulate. She's so confident. She's so brave. And she's got so many cool characteristics. And we've developed this child, dude. Yeah. And it's, she's Sweet. like a science project. Yeah. So Sweet. if I have one, I'm blessed with one. If we have two, cool. When I married her, I said we'll have four. I'm honestly comfortable. 
but it's not about comfort. If I, if the universe yeah. gifts me another one, no then doubt. I'm even more blessed. Yeah, dude. no doubt. Uh, prior to the show, I put up a little story on Instagram and I asked you about cold showers. I was very yeah. disappointed, dude, because <laughs> I thought for sure you're a guy who does cold showers. I, I think I answered that by saying, dude, I've been locked up and that was a, that was a punishment. <laughs> that was <laughs> but check it out. Like, I've been to like, the, you know, when you go into like a... I don't like Burke Williams. You go to Burke Williams and you get one of these yep. massages. They have those ice dulges. You know, where you get that. You pull, mm. you sit on a rock, you pull the cord, and it just dumps like mm. freezing ice cold that. water on you. I've done that. That's Ooh, cool. Yeah. But I've never really processed to get in and be like, oh, I'm just going to fucking turn this water on ice cold <laughs> and get the fuck in there. Like in the morning, get Do the it. fuck out of here Do with it. that. Do <laughs> it. Tomorrow. That's cool. I'm tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. Cryotherapy. You've never done cryotherapy? I have done cryotherapy okay. multiple times. That's good stuff, I've too. I've done cryotherapy. I've done, you know, float tanks with the sensory deprivation tanks. How is that? It's not for everybody until you can get really comfortable being in that confined space by yourself for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. Yeah, it probably And it takes you a couple times to really be able to relax and let yourself go and really be comfortable in that environment. Um, I've done it, you know, a handful of times, probably like five times. I don't have never had any of these like crazy psychedelic experiences that Joe Rogan and, you know, people I've heard on his podcast talk about. But I do have this like sense of like complete like levitation, just floating in your sensor, your senses are in your nervous system kind of is able to separate from the meat on your body, your bones. You're just weightless. It's mm. a very, very unique uh, experience. How are you floating? You're in uh, it's all salt. So it's just water in there. Like there's, and then they put, I don't know how many hundreds of pounds of salt, which it's like the Red Sea. And then you yeah, get in there yeah. and you just stay right above the water. And you just have to really like, it takes you a, while, a minute to like understand that you can really just drop everything. Just like let go. Put your head back and just float completely. It's not like you have to like tether your feet, mm-hmm. paddle a little bit to kind of put, mm. use your neck to hold yourself up. You can just lay there, dude. Mm. And you start, you feeling like you're like spinning in a circle, but you're so small, you can't. And then you fucking just... You can black out and like hmm. pass out and you wake up, you know, they knock on the door and it's fresh. like, you just feel so fresh and relaxed and uh, connected. It's a great place to go in there and like meditate. One last one. We, we end every show with this one. It's routines. I'm a guy for routines. I like my routines every day. Uh, when you wake up in the mornings, talk to me about it. Mornings, I mean, from breakfast to lunches to work to working out. Um, your, what are your days like? I've fallen off this last couple. I just had some travels a couple of weeks back, so it just I haven't got back in a routine. But but my routine the last couple of years, um, I get up really early in the morning, which was never my thing growing up. But having a kid like changed that, so I get up very early in the morning. You know, kick it with the family for a few minutes, and then I'm just straight to a trainer. And I have a kid that comes to my house. You fucking we box every morning, mm. uh, three to five times a week. Um, once I'm done with him. It's just, you know, shower, get ready, up to a coffee shop from my house, grab a quad shot of coffee, mm-hmm. and um, <laughs> and then I'm off, dude. And it's always a different day. Every day is a different day. Mm. Um, I've got so many projects going on. I've got so many meetings that I got to get to. That uh, And then I work remote, so I just usually jump on that freeway and head up to 5 up to downtown L.A., and uh, the day kind of just kind of evolves from there. So set routine would be mainly just the exercise and then getting focused for the day it gets me going i always have a busy day and dude if i don't work out it's like i get exhausted pretty quick mm-hmm. but um just getting and doing something for myself first thing in the morning makes me feel very powerful very very strong what's your go-to breakfast dude i've been trying to do this intermittent fasting lately mm-hmm. um but i do i do a lot of asahi bowls mm-hmm. and then um i do a lot of avocado toast with an egg 
Bomb. So, it's so good, dude. Bomb. Yeah. And then my go-to for lunch, man, if I could have it all day long, every day would be I fucking eat sushi. I fucking love sushi. For lunch, yeah. yeah. Sushi, yeah. and then I try to do a light and try to do a light dinner. Yeah. We have some options, you know? Yeah. Well, listen, man, you're a busy guy, and I really appreciate you coming on. This means this a lot. This was my pleasure, man. I had a really this good time. Yeah, this was cool that I was able to do this with you. Yeah. It's nice to be able to express and share some of these stories. No, and then you're you're expressing those stories to others, and others are going to learn from it and grow and educate and be a better, better human. So yeah. appreciate it. You got it, brother. Thanks, I man. I appreciate it. No doubt. Thank you. All right, man. Let's All go right. eat, dude. Let's do it. Yeah. That was fun, man. I can't thank Chris enough. Opened up his story and his book for us. And there's really no excuse for any of us to, to lag in life. I mean, we all come out the same way. <laughs> you know, uh, it's up to us to do the right things. So he's kind of taken that mindset and went tenfold. So. Uh, he's obviously gone through some stuff as a kid and that didn't stop him from doing anything positive in his life and and being a successful person so thank you Chris for that thank you for opening up telling your story and letting everybody know about it uh, and I'm sure you're you know you, look man we changed one person's life today I, I'll take it so uh, this is Mike Dubpod thank you so much for making me a part of your day I am Mike Gabriel follow me on Instagram Twitter and Facebook, Miked Up Pod, all the same. Until next time, folks, remember, no wasted days. Good night, everybody.